Welcome to Economic Frontiers from MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy. Today, our guest is Christian Catalini from MIT's Sloan School of Management, and we're going to be talking about the economics of the blockchain and digital currencies more broadly. This is a really fascinating conversation. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you. Now getting on to the show. All right. Welcome to the show, Christian. Uh, really excited to have you here. Um, let's get started. So our first topic of conversation is going to be the economics of Bitcoin and the blockchain. So maybe first you can tell us how you got interested in this topic uh, as, a, as a researcher. Thanks for having me here. Um, so the story started very much when um, I joined Sloan. I had been looking at this space for some time, and in particular at Bitcoin. Uh, and as many juniors, uh, you know, I, I, on the job market, uh, you, you have to keep focusing on your job market paper and not, you know, divert to other topics. So I left that in the, in the back burner. But then at some point, I um, reached out to two of our students, uh, one undergraduate and one MBA, who were interested in um, essentially giving everybody at MIT $100 in Bitcoin and jumpstarting an ecosystem here on campus around the cryptocurrency. Uh, I was fascinated by their idea. And um, I convinced them to turn it into a research study. Uh, so they, they had already pretty much raised the capital uh, from, from a group of our alumni. Uh, and when Katrin Tucker and I kind of got involved, the idea was really to uh, first make it safe. Uh, so that, you know, the moment where we were starting to drop our, almost half a million dollars on campus wouldn't be uh, crazy. But also to learn something from it, um, from a research perspective. Got it. And what were you hoping to learn initially? I think we were fascinated by um, the possibility to observe for the first time a counterfactual diffusion curve. Often when technology diffuses in society, it does so endogenously, right? So early adopters will, will adopt first, and, and then over time as the cost decrease, you see more and more people adopting. But here we had a setting where uh, there was still a lot of uncertainty around the role of the technology. Use cases were very limited. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm, but I think it was really unclear which direction the technology could go. And um, MIT was a particularly interesting setting for this because uh, there's a lot of talent, raw talent in our undergraduates. And I think people were excited beyond Bitcoin as the currency uh, and, and we're thinking about Bitcoin as the application stack, as kind of an operating system for a new set of applications that could, you know, increase access to banking uh, in, in developing countries, uh, improve financial services, and really revolutionize how we think about currencies. Got it. So, so while Bitcoin was just uh, an interesting new technology, in some sense, you had a broader economic question in mind here. Uh, more than just kind of do people use the Bitcoin or not. So uh, what did you find? Yeah, so I think uh, the students were actually really interested in, you know, getting people to adopt Bitcoin and, and turning MIT into the first um, economy that was running on a cryptocurrency. Um, from an economic perspective, there were a set of questions that we had in mind around, uh, of course, the, the role of network effects in the adoption of new technology how privacy concerns interact with that. Uh, Bitcoin is a really interesting technology when it comes to financial transaction privacy. Uh, but the broader level, I think we were interested in what kind of role do early adopters play in, in further diffusion? Uh, do they you know, generate positive spillovers as it's often assumed in the literature or uh, can they actually deter innovation and, and diffusion from taking place when, when they're not on board? And so we had a broad set of questions on um, on, on diffusion and, and adoption, uh, but also on, on our privacy, you know, um, 
challenges our, our conception of uh, financial transaction in a world that's becoming more and more digital. Got it. And so what did you find? I mean, these, so first of all, actually, this isn't something that's interesting. How, do you, how does one define an early adopter anyway? I mean, we, we all have this vague conception that uh, some people are really into technology and they're going to get the, the fancy new gadget first, but I've never actually seen that operationalized in, in economics. Absolutely. So I think as economists, we decided to go for reveal preferences. So uh, when many startups launch a new product, they usually open up some sort of uh, mailing list or wait list uh, for people that want to adopt the technology first. And that's essentially what we did. So we gave students five days to register. And then we used the speed at which they you know, sign up for, for the distribution as, as a proxy for their early adopter status. Of course, uh, we, we need to check that they weren't just you know, more, more in need for cash. And so we use survey measure to corroborate that these are people that usually adopt other fintech technology more, more early uh, that are you know, extensively using apps like Venmo and the like. And so we find that actually the review preference approach is pretty robust in terms of spotting the early adopters. Okay. And so how did these early adopters use the, the Bitcoin and what, what was kind of the interesting variation between uh, the different early adopters? Yeah, so um, as I was mentioning before, what we could observe here for the first time was a counterfactual diffusion curve. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that we had settings where, you know, your typical early adopters were forced to wait. Uh, we convinced the students that, that um, were part of the Bitcoin club to delay the distribution to 50% of the sample by simply two weeks. And that variation would give us kind of a chance to observe what happens when, you know, people that really wanted it first, that were kind of your typical technology gatekeepers, don't get the technology first. Um, and we use that delay to, to estimate, you know, what happens later to diffusion and adoption. Um, in terms of results, so first of all, um, surprisingly, uh, most of the students still to date are holding on to their Bitcoin. This is not really something we expected, uh, but it's interesting that in the sign-up survey when students were mentioning you know, the reasons for, for using Bitcoin, the top uh, answer was actually as an investment vehicle. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time convincing them that Bitcoin is a very volatile asset, uh, but at the end, they were right. So when we distributed Bitcoin, we distributed it at about $350. Today, it's, it's, it's you know, circling around $800. So the ones that are holding are, are actually making uh, a very profitable gain on it. Um, activity on the other side was really low. And, and I think to economists, that's not surprising because on a campus like MIT, you can use all sort of digital payment systems uh, from credit cards, debit cards, Apple Pay. And our students are clearly early adopters of Venmo and, and alike. Um, some people cashed out, of course, uh, about 11% cashed out in the first two weeks. So they kind of told us, you know, this is not for me. Uh, most people cashed out uh, later when the price was, you know, above the original uh, distribution price. Um, but I think what's interesting is that when we delayed early adopters, they were way more likely to cash out. And this was really surprising to us because by all accounts, these were the people that you would have expected to hold on to the currency, maybe convince their friends to use it. Um, but that delay really affected them. And, and, you know, after we rule out a number of alternative explanations like, you know, pure effects and learning, uh, the one that seems the most plausible to us at this point is that 
they, they do get consumption value and utility from being first to adopt. Early adopters do care about, you know, that exclusivity period uh, that they usually get when they're able to sign up in line for the, for the new iPhone or, you know, wake up at, at, at midnight to, to, to order it online. Uh, and when you take that away, that kind of takes out the fun. And so for some of these probably being bypassed as early adopters and, and maybe being challenged in their role as gatekeepers for new technologies within their peers, in environments where this is heavily socialized, like in dorms, uh, that really mattered. And, and so I think one of the contributions of our paper is to highlight that we tend to think of early adopters as generating positive network effects, and, and they clearly do, right? So they teach others, uh, they, they bring people on board when the technology is obscure. And uh, by the way, do, yeah. do, you, do you measure that, and if so, how? That they bring others on board? So we, we didn't measure it directly in this setting, right? So, uh, but what we see is that when an above the median share of early adopter is delayed, and you can measure this either at the dorm level or within a social cluster, uh, after, after weeks, what we see is that other people start dropping out of Bitcoin too. So this adoption is much faster in the environments where early adopters are not holding on. Um, the opposite story is essentially one where you can imagine we did everything right. So we seeded the technology to early adopters first. Uh, when you look 500 days into the experiment, those dorms, those social clusters are about 45% more active than the others. Uh, so and how, just yeah. a clarification, how do you define activity? Just the fact that they uh, chose to receive the, the Bitcoins in, into a wallet or are they actually doing something with it? Right. So first of all, we, we get transaction data from the wallet intermediaries. We, we track it on the blockchain. You know, we use some machine learning to, to do a, uh, all of that. Um, but also uh, the 45% figure that I just mentioned is based on a really conservative estimate. For that one, we explicitly looked at people that kept adding money to their, you know, to their Bitcoin holdings. And so these are people that not only are, you know, maybe actively using it, but are also increasing their, their assets in Bitcoin. Um, I think what's interesting is that, uh, again, many people are holding it possibly as a speculation device, uh, but also that um, people seem to be looking at these early adopters for, for advice and reference uh, in, in these environments. Got it. All right. And then just uh, turning back to these slower adopters. So, it was, uh, so you mechanically delayed the adoption of people that would have otherwise chose to adopt earlier. And this resulted in them kind of being less excited about that technology. So I think that's actually a really interesting finding because I think a baseline model for early adopters might just say that the people that adopt early get more utility from the technology itself. And here you're just, you're just, you're showing that it's a lot of it is due to the fact that it, it makes them cool or fashionable. It's more like a social benefit rather than an actual benefit in terms of the consumption sense. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, you can think of it as a traditional trade-off. Mm -hmm. um, these people uh, occupy roles in their in their peer group that are clearly valuable. And I think part of the, the their reputation is based on the fact that they do introduce new technology to their peers and are successful at doing that. Uh, but of course, access comes with a cost. And, and I think some of these may have higher consumption value from, from you know, like you mentioned, from being the first ones. Um, and, and that's very much consistent with what you see also in crowdfunding, where often people are willing to, you know, pay months in advance for a gadget that won't be out for, for another year. Um, and when those early adopters have been bypassed and the product has been delivered to somebody else first, they, they also get pretty angry. 
Interesting. And so does this actually have implications for uh, business strategy or firm strategy in any way, that, that, that there's this additional motivation for the early adopters? Yeah, so I think the way we usually think about you know, the introduction of a new product is that often there are technical considerations for why you want to limit access. And so when you look at very successful rollouts like Gmail or, or other ones, um, often what happened is that that scarcity served two purposes. The first one was like, you know, you couldn't give access to that many gigabytes of emails to everybody at the same time. But the second one was creating this elite status of Gmail invites, which were selling on eBay for $150. Um, I think what our paper highlights is two things. So the first one is that there may be value in that exclusivity period. So even if you think about a monopolist trying to optimize the distribution across heterogeneous consumers, you may want to introduce this inefficiency um, in, in the distribution uh, because of the benefits that you get from that. Uh, but the second one is also that when you think about technology diffusion curves, often in the management literature, we tend to go to the MBA class and teach you know, uh, that you can manage the technology diffusion process, that you can strategically accelerate it. Um, I think our paper shows that, you know, Zvi Grilikas and, and the kind of the, the early literature in economics is sort of right. Uh, it often backfires to try to accelerate that diffusion process. There's a natural order. And so the, the best way to maybe diffuse a new product, so if you really want to be practical about this, would be to know your early adopters. Often these people show up at your door first, and so it's easy to identify them. You know, they sign up first, they show up at your stores when on launch date. Uh, but in other cases, uh, if you think about, you know, a government maybe trying to introduce a new beneficial technology into society, they may not do so. And so uh, what could be worthwhile in those cases is trying to identify these people before you see the technology. Because what our results show is that if you really want to benefit from the positive network effects of these individuals, uh, you may have to give them access first. Got it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's super fascinating. So... I want to move on now to a related work that you've done about the blockchain. And as a preface, um, there are, there's kind of a nexus of related technologies uh, that are uh, that are involved in making a digital cryptocurrency work. And a lot of people have focused on Bitcoin. So why did you focus on the blockchain uh, instead? And, and actually, before you get to that, can you just define what the role of the blockchain is in, in, in this ecosystem? Yeah, so first of all, let me clarify that uh, I think whatever term we chose, uh, it won't be able to capture the complexity of, of this space. Um, I think there's been a lot of hype. And, and our purpose with, with Joshua Gantz in writing this piece was really to separate basic economics from, from hype. Uh, the reason why we landed on blockchain is because it has become one of the terms that encompasses a lot of technologies that are, um, you know, uh, broadcasted in this space. Some other people use the more politically correct term of distributed ledger technology. Uh, but I think at its core, it's really about cryptocurrencies. And so blockchain has become a useful term for talking about cryptocurrencies, uh, but the two are really linked. And I think what we're trying to highlight in the paper is that you cannot have, you know, a real blockchain without a cryptocurrency in the back end. So what is the role of the cryptocurrency and or, or can you explain to the audience what a cryptocurrency is and what the distributed ledger is, maybe using an example? 
Yeah, so um, let me start with the blockchain and, and then we'll build up uh, to the other components. I mean, the cryptography is, is fascinating here. And uh, I think for economists interested in this space, uh, appreciating some of the underlying complexity is actually really useful. Um, a blockchain, like the name says, is essentially a chain of blocks. Uh, where it gets interesting to economists like, uh, like me is that uh, those blocks can contain all sorts of transactions. And, and I'd like you to think of transactions in the most general way possible. Every time you, know, you authenticate yourself online, you buy something, you exchange goods and services, you're essentially engaging in a transaction. And so you can track digital goods, physical goods, uh, exchanges of IP rights. Um, this becomes a very interesting structure. That's why we call it kind of a general purpose technology for recording, settling, and, and actually having a perfect audit trail of what has happened. Now, in the paper, we, we talk about two costs that, that I think are going to be affected by this suite of technologies. Um, the reason why we like to think about cost is because, again, to separate some of the hype around this, this idea that blockchain will revolutionize everything, I think we first need to think about, in, in terms of really simple economics, um, what is changing. So and, uh, can yeah. I just uh, interject a little bit? So, so far, you've described to me a system that records transactions. That to me, it doesn't seem very novel. We've had databases for a very long time. So uh, that doesn't, it, in and of itself, seem to differentiate this technology from, from, from the others. So, so what does? Yeah, so that, that's a really good point. And in fact, in the paper, we talk about two costs. The first one is this idea of the cost of verification. And, and I can ex expand on it more if you like. But the second one is the cost of networking. So uh, when, when you think about a blockchain, Per se, it's just a distributed database. Where it gets really interesting is when you use a cryptocurrency to kind of bootstrap and create incentive for its keeping. Um, how do you update uh, you know, a distributed ledger in a totally decentralized way? Uh, the reason Bitcoin is so interesting is because for the first time in history, uh, people could exchange value on a global scale at practically zero transaction cost. I mean, there's, there's some caveats to that, uh, but without the need of trusted intermediaries. And that's really the combination of both the ability to verify transaction attributes in a distributed and decentralized way, but also to run a network that can reach consensus about what goes into that ledger and what should not go into that ledger in a totally decentralized way. Okay, so you've emphasized this decentralized nature of this. So uh, I understand how it works in terms of Bitcoin and the fact that people want to transact currencies, uh, sorry, a digital currency with each other. But in the paper, you actually discuss a lot of other applications. So where does the distributed aspect of this come in? So I think uh, there's a long-standing literature in economics around networks and platforms. And when you think about it, Platforms uh, serve many purposes, but often they match demand and supply. So they're marketplaces. Uh, they often come with a reputation system uh, and they do provide some market design layer on top of that so that the two sides can clear uh, as effectively and efficiently as possible. Uh, but at the end of it, when you think about what a cryptocurrency really is, it's a currency. And so it's, it's something that can track information and value in a secure way. Reputation systems are essentially currencies. Um, and, and a lot of the market design mechanism that we've been using to matching um, demand and supply are essentially um, flavors of currencies that are used in, in different marketplaces. Um, I'm, I'm gonna push back on that a little bit. I, I don't actually think that reputation is a currency. Um, 
at least the classical definition of reputation economics is that it's not actually something that can be, uh, you know, traded away necessarily. Uh, let's say I'm known to be a smart person, then I can't trade that to you, that reputation, right? So can you clarify on that? Yeah, so the trading aspect is, is not um, necessarily what I was focused on when I mentioned the word currency, right? So in society, there's currencies that we trade and, you know, exchange in marketplaces, but there's also types of currencies that are not tradable, uh, but still serve a purpose for signaling uh, in labor markets or, you know, in, in academia. I mean, a lot of the, the exchanges within academia are based on uh, currencies that are not explicit. Um, and so when you think about that, uh, what makes markets work are different types of currencies. Sometimes they can be monetized and sometimes they're not converted into, into US dollars, uh, but they still ser serve this uh, inherent purpose of transferring information about value uh, in different ways. Got it. Yeah. So to me, that would seem just like a, a credible signal or information that is useful to parties that are transacting. So yes. maybe, maybe that's a, uh, an alternative way of, of Absolutely. Of I, th I think so. What makes the distributed ledger useful is that you can record anything of value, anything that, you know, uh, it's meaningful for that marketplace to exist. Uh, in some cases, it could be the reputation of a certain seller. Uh, in other cases, it could be information about the provenance of the goods, their quality, uh, you know, uh, how they went through the supply chain, um, which parties have signed off on different steps, uh, the credentials of the parties involved. Think about the degrees, right, of, of people on a, on a labor market. Um, and so when we talk about currency, we're thinking in the broadest sense possible. Okay. Um, so let's uh, move, move to how might one might actually apply this. So you mentioned an example that I think is pretty well suited towards this, which is uh, the credentials relating to a, a degree. So we already have, we've had degrees for a very long time, and people use them in order to find jobs, in order to establish a reputation. And on the internet currently, one way to kind of verify that you have a degree uh, is you give a university email, and that's how a lot of websites actually figure this out. So what is, how would a blockchain-based solution to degrees uh, improve on this situation? Yeah, so I'm thinking on the fly on that. Um, I think different ways. So one level is that as you lower the cost of verification, you can you know, verify uh, in situations that you wouldn't have verified before. And so you could imagine that not only I want to verify the degree, but the subparts of it uh, in terms of courses, classes taken, uh, achievements through the course. And so if you think about a student going through maybe the undergraduate experience, there's a lot more information that gets lost in that, in that transcript. Uh, furthermore, I mean, there's been fraud and, and there's been cases where degrees weren't uh, verified in the proper way, often at very high levels of government too, uh, in different countries. Um, so I think there would be value in a platform where we can track credentials uh, in a much more reliable way. But I think where it gets interesting on the extensive margin is that suddenly the unit is not so much the old degree, but it's the, the components. And so every data point in that degree could be verifiable and could carry additional information to the marketplace. And in practice, would it mean that the university is recording all of this information? So the university has an account and the individual student has an account, and then there. And then, how how would a third party 
access this information? So one way would be to, and, and you would have to think through the, the privacy implications of it. So blockchain has also different degrees of privacy depending on how it's implemented. Um, but something that would be useful, it's not just one institution being on, on such a blockchain, but multiple ones. And so then you would have a federated system uh, where you're essentially tracking attributes about identity uh, that are meaningful. Uh, and then people could use them in different settings. Uh, you, you could imagine, you know, they may be relevant maybe for credit or, or for some other instances or uh, institutions that want to compete online maybe with universities in providing degrees that are available uh, could record it in the same way and they could use the outcomes of the individuals tracked also this way uh, to, you know, show progress. Uh, so I think once you, once you rethink about the marketplace as an ecosystem, uh, that currency has value throughout these ecosystem in different ways. And I think the hard part is really thinking about those extensive margin applications. What can you do once, once you have this? Okay. Um, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, but you do mention in the paper, is the concept of smart contracts. Uh, and one example that you give that is particularly interesting is the example of an auction. So can you walk us through that? Yeah, so uh, when we talk about auctions, it's more to to make a, a broader example of what happens once you intersect the currency with programming. So uh, I think we've seen with recent events that smart contracts are extremely hard to pull off properly, and we haven't learned how to translate legal code into you know software. Uh, um, so just for the listeners, yeah. what, what, what is this recent event? Uh, so Ethereum, um, which is one of the different cryptocurrencies, essentially created uh, what is very much a digital venture capital fund to fund cryptocurrency projects. And um, Ethereum uses a full Turing programming language on top of it, uh, which is much more sophisticated relative to Bitcoin. Bitcoin allows only for very simple types of scripts. Um, but as a consequence, um, you know, in the effort to experiment with this technology and build new things, uh, I think the, the developer community behind it uh, ignored that this always poses challenges, right? So there's always unintended consequences when the systems become complex. And uh, one hacker essentially was able to, you know, exploit uh, a bug in the system, run, run essentially everything through a loop and funneled money out of this VC fund, uh, which created a major chaos because, of course, there's all uh, consensus system and how the code base is updated. And uh, there was a long debate on how to fix this problem once it had happened. But I think it goes to show that smart contracts are extremely powerful, um, but they're also complex. And, and so we need to think about one, once we start automating parts of our society this way, uh, do we really understand what these contracts are doing? Okay, got it. All right, so now go, going back to the simpler example of the yes. auction. So I think the auction, the, the example we use in the paper is the Vikri second price auction, which is a classic case where, um, you know, you may not want to disclose your real willingness to pay because you're worried about expropriation. Of course, you know, all the usual caveats of auctions running multiple times would apply. But what's interesting here is that you could design a cryptocurrency in a way that that, that bid is never revealed uh, to the seller. And so you end up paying the second price, which is you know economically optimal, uh, but you're not revealing your true willingness to pay because essentially you're using some clever cryptography to work around that. Okay, just to clarify that for the listeners, so suppose that uh, me and Christian are bidding on uh, an ad slot for Google. Um, Christian is willing to pay $100 and I'm willing to pay $50. Uh, if we both bid our true uh, valuation, the way that the second price auction would work is uh, Christian would win and he would have to pay $50. Uh, so 
in the classical way the system works, Google, who's auctioning this off, would actually see the $100 bid. Uh, but potentially, there could be a smart contract that does this instead of Google, and that smart contract will only tell Google how much to pay and to who to pay, but they would never know that Christian was actually willing to pay $100. Is that and, correct? Yes, and, and and to build to give you a different example uh, of of the intersection between you know cryptocurrencies and economics, uh, there's a reason why one of the early use cases of Bitcoin was online gambling. Uh, one of the issues with online gambling is that it's really hard for anybody online to verify that you're playing against a fair house. Uh, but if you're tracking some of this transaction on a public ledger. Uh, and you know, with some added clever cryptography on top of it, the owls can prove, cryptographically prove, that they're not cheating. And, and so you suddenly have a marketplace where you didn't have it before. Um, another example could be uh, once you connect you know, an Internet of Things device to a cryptocurrency. Let's assume that the device is you know, secure, so it cannot be tampered with. Suddenly you could sell information coming out of that device, maybe it's a sensor tracking pollution or you know, radiation or whatever you're interested in, into a, marketplaces, uh, into a marketplace. And so I think what's fascinating to economists is that suddenly we can price things at a level that we couldn't before, and maybe we can work uh, into solving market failures or, or other issues uh, where pricing uh, externalities has been extremely challenging. Uh, so I, f I find that quite fascinating. Interesting. So this uh, Internet of Things example, do, do you really think that people would be willing to pay that enough money to justify the device? So for example, let's say we had a camera sitting here outside of the Sloan building. Um, would anyone be willing to pay for its data? I, I think that's an open question, right? So um, going back to the pollution example, uh, maybe you would have to subsidize that at the beginning to get the sensors out. Uh, but that would be a way to, to bootstrap such a network. And then maybe you could sell the data stream coming out of it. Um, I think where it gets really interesting is that uh, you can really price any resource, electricity, bandwidth, uh, information, uh, IP rights, uh, at the much more fine-grained level. And so what is extremely hard in this space is really imagining those extensive margin applications. It's as if, you know, we're thinking about the internet uh, in, in its early phases and, you know, who would have predicted maybe YouTube or, or even Snapchat or some of these other applications that we built on top of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's one of the joys of doing research in the digital technology is that new things are always coming up and it's fun to think about them for the first time. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about regarding the smart contracts is uh, they're presumably written in a programming language. And uh, all programming languages, to my knowledge, have, have bugs, so zero knowledge attacks, for example. And so does that mean that no such currency will, no such contracts will be, be tamper-proof? Like if Ethereum is written in Java, for example, and there are well-known exploits uh, that that have occurred throughout the history of Java, when you find one, does that mean that you'll be able to just extract all the money from such a system? I mean, a lot of our financial system already relies on a lot of computer science, right? So when you think about more modern banking and finance relies on cryptography and encryption, and those, we know that some of those algorithms are not as robust as we believe they are, at least some of the, the oldest ones. Um, but this is a more general problem. Um, as we digitize more of our society, as we expose more of our transactions and information uh, to a digital environment, um, these are challenges that we'll be facing uh, with AI and with some of these other technologies anyway. Uh, 
uh, I think maybe, uh, so first of all, there's clever cryptography uh, researchers working on these issues and in trying to prove that a system is robust, um, or at least they're trying to simulate and stress test it before it's implemented. Uh, but also, I think this opens up uh, a number of interesting questions around data privacy, um, you know, who can control certain assets and transactions, and um, and also what are we exposing uh, to these systems that you know are still experimental? Yeah, uh, I mean, just thinking about this myself, one of the differences between the current system that we have and a, a Bitcoin-like system is that one of the problems with Bitcoin, paradoxically, is that it is a standard. So if you find the flaw in the standard, then you can destroy a lot of value all at once. Whereas uh, otherwise, if you're thinking about an attack on a particular bank or on some other particular institution, they typically all have different systems. So it's unlikely that one exploit is gonna get every the entire system down. Uh, so uh, I would push back a little bit on that because in a sense, yes, Bitcoin is, you know, is a protocol, but we need to remember that that protocol is developed and extended by people. And so, in a sense, uh, if something like that were to happen, you could imagine the network reaching consensus on a different trajectory. Um, even the the attack on Ethereum, I think, was managed in different ways and ended up in a fork. Uh, so some people disagreed with the fix, and some people wanted to, you know, try to fix the and recover the funds, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but at the same time, um, there's always individuals behind this. And so standards are, are only standards insofar people adopt them and use them. I think as a general no note of caution, um, you hear a lot of hype around smart contracts entering our lives. And I think they should be entering it in a very slow way because, you know, software does exactly what we tell it to do. And, and often that's not what we want. Yeah, it's uh, hard to program, as, as I'm sure you know. Uh, as, as someone that does quite a bit of it. Um, one, one aspect of this technology that we haven't talked about yet is uh, its usefulness for not like a broad network, but for kind of a narrow network. So let's say financial institutions uh, that are in close cooperation that could potentially use such a system. So can you talk about that? Yes, and, and in fact, you hear a lot of discussion around what people call usually private blockchains or you know permissioned blockchain in, in contrast to Bitcoin, which is permissionless. Um, and when we worked on the paper, um, the way we were thinking about it is that on one extreme, you have something which is essentially just a distributed database. And you have a bunch of organizations coming around and, and agreeing on what the standard should be for you know Bank of America settling transaction with some other bank. Um, are those innovative? Not so much, right? In a sense, we did have the technology to build this for a long time. What's interesting is that it's become a focusing device. So you're seeing a lot of financial institutions coming around blockchain and distributed ledger technology as a way to standardize their processes and maybe realize that, you know, settling at T plus three, so three days is not the most efficient thing for liquidity. Um, and there's frictions in the system that, you know, in a digital environment don't need to exist. Uh, so it's helping in that direction. But on the other end, these private blockchains are really only taking advantage of one of the two costs that I mentioned. So the cost of verification. Um, they don't need proof of work, so they don't need the costly mining and energy wastefulness of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. 
but at the same time, they're also vulnerable to either collusion by the entities involved um, or by the system being attacked. So recently, there's been a number of attacks on SWIFT, network broadly used for banking transactions on a global scale. People were essentially able to funnel fake messages and move money around, uh, mostly because the network is only as robust as each one of his nodes. Um, what, what, what is actually more interesting as you move away from this private blockchains and into the more permissionless world is that you can think of them as open innovation protocols um, in the sense that when you're launching a new cryptocurrency where everybody you know can build on the periphery and build applications on top of it without asking for consent, uh, what you're doing is you're creating an innovation ecosystem uh, that can flourish. And, and so with Bitcoin, I think what we're seeing is that of course, it's not compliant. It has all sort of issues with, you know, anti-money laundering and know your customer regulation uh, because it wasn't designed to comply with the current financial system. But at the same time, for anybody that wants to build on top of Bitcoin, they don't need permission. And so they can start tomorrow um, a service that uses the Bitcoin blockchain, maybe to timestamp things or to record certain transactions uh, without having to go through an intermediary. Um, as you look into the future, I think there's a lot of potential into this, both in terms of the provision of public goods, you could imagine private public collaborations, or even when you look at software, uh, open source communities usually had to rely on signaling, right? So career signaling for people contributing to it, uh, maybe large firms doing big investments because they can appropriate through complementary assets. So think about IBM donating to some of these projects and then appropriating on the consulting side. Uh, but here you have a system where a whole community can come around and use the crypto token to fund the initiative. And this is where, you know, uh, this becomes really similar to crowdfunding uh, because when you're launching a new cryptocurrency, maybe with a different market design choice, maybe you want more privacy, maybe you want less privacy, maybe you want to be, you know, government compliant versus not, or you want to allow for contracts or whatever your choice is. What you're saying is that by issuing tokens, you, you're essentially funding your f future development because those tokens and the, you know, the returns on, on arbitrage or speculation can then go to fund the developers that build that ecosystem. So that makes a lot of sense, but I think it's a, a, perhaps maybe a little misleading unless I'm misunderstanding things uh, because most open source projects are not cryptocurrency related. So why does it matter that if your open source project happens to be cryptocurrency related that you can bootstrap it in this way? I mean, if we're designing a new um, text editor, why does it? Why does this funding channel matter? I guess. So the way you could tie the project to, and, and I guess a text editor wouldn't be the most obvious example, but think about a a platform for developing text editor-like applications, uh, where maybe you want many plugins for different languages or scripts. Um, suddenly, let's say if you have a script that you know cleans all of your data automatically or uses machine learning to extract features out of those data. Uh, you can imagine a marketplace uh, run by an underlying cryptocurrency where you're paying for, for using that feature uh, directly with the token um, where the developers gets compensated and the people that have built the platform that allows that kind of text editor to run in the first place also earn returns because maybe they, they had some uh, tokens to start with. Um, here's a practical example. So. People often think of Bitcoin as the fully anonymous cryptocurrency. It turns out Bitcoin is actually pseudonymous. You're like a writer writing a book under a pseudonym. Um, and that has issues, right? Because essentially, if you think about 
even in, in, in corporate environments, if you want to settle transactions between firms, the last thing you want is for your competitors to be able to track some of your moves or your suppliers or stuff like that. Um, so the need of privacy is a big one, uh, even for legitimate users. Um, in October, there was the launch of a new cryptocurrency called Zcash. And the whole assumption behind the founders of Zcash was that essentially we needed a cryptocurrency that offered different degrees of privacy and potentially much higher privacy than even Bitcoin. And the way that group came together, um, even across you know academic contributions to it, um, is to build a business around the crypto token. Uh, so they have what is called the founders reward, uh, which means that part of the cryptocurrency uh, mining will go automatically to people developing it and improving the ecosystem. Uh, so I mean, this will take time to unfold. Um, even equity crowdfunding is in its nascent phase and it's slowly moving up the chain from you know angels to uh, VC. Uh, but eventually you could definitely imagine cryptocurrencies being used to fund public goods, to fund uh, you know valuable uh, ecosystems and, and sort of general purpose technologies per se. Got it. I, I mean, this is all very fascinating, but I'm, but I think a lot of the, the details regarding how this may work, are still very much to be determined. And, and also whether the economics makes sense, right? In some sense, uh, if, if the parameters of this problem are exactly right, then you can imagine that this uh, cryptocurrency embedded in an open source project will generate enough uh, revenue so that the initial developers would get paid uh, and they would be willing to contribute. But it, certainly at this point, before we have kind of known successes, it, it seems like it's still a very risky proposition. It's a lot of speculation. Absolutely. And in fact, um, going back to Zcash, I think it was within days of the currency launching, somebody cloned it and forked it and said, here's Zcash, but without the founder reward, right? So if you want to adopt this other version of the cryptocurrency, you won't have to pay X percent to the developers. And so that really poses the challenges, uh, the challenge on, on that developer group to show that they're worth uh, the founder reward. Um, I think in general, yes, all of this is extremely preliminary. Uh, there's a lot of experimentation, but it's important to re remind ourselves of like even Bitcoin, which is, you know, declared dead multiple times and now is, is still around a $12 billion market cap. Um, is starting to serve a purpose. Uh, we've seen countries where currency is, has been devalued or uh, where, you know, like in the case of India, where uh, banknotes have been removed and suddenly people start thinking about this assets as an alternative to fiat money. Uh, so going forward, I think even central banks will have to think hard about uh, who, who are they competing against and, and what does it mean that uh, there's a store of value that's totally digital, that cannot be censored and that can be transferred, you know, with, with a few bits. Got it. Uh, and you, it, it's great that you mentioned central banks. So uh, one really interesting topic is how governments might use cryptocurrencies. So do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, it's a fascinating area and I'm not a macroeconomist. And so this is not not my field. Um, but when I think about what, what, what a central bank could do, uh, there's clear implications when you go back to the cost of verification for how we implement taxation, for how you do things like quantitative easing. Um, and, and, and all sort of incentives within the economy, are you essentially get uh, funds and, and incentives through, through, through the economy. But what's, what's fascinating is that 
you can start rethinking the whole banking system from the ground up with, with modern technology. So what would it mean if the central bank could give every citizen a central bank digital wallet? So, you know, essentially suddenly would be banked right away at very low cost. And then you had a whole ecosystem of startups and, and new players maybe competing for payment services, for paying your bills, for all the things that we do with bank accounts. Um, that poses a huge challenge on in terms of how are we going to do lending, right? Because banks, of course, need that liquidity to, to lend it out. Um, but you, you can start rethinking the system from the ground up where maybe citizens old can hold digital currency from the central bank, which is more secure, uh, maybe with a slight negative interest rate. I mean, you, you, you'll have to work the economics out. But then suddenly you, you can provide services at a lower cost and you increase competition in the banking sector, a sector that's heavily regulated uh, and that maybe has, hasn't been known for a lot of innovation in, in, in the last 20 years. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. I mean, uh, I would imagine actually that we would see banks lob lobbying very heavily against this. I mean, if the government could truly execute a, a low cost banking system, that would be devastating for banks. And, 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 and to roll back, I think banks serve a really important purpose in the economy. And so we need to think hard about how do we keep that function um, in a world where, you know, they're not just custodial. Um, um, I, I, I think the challenge will be, of course, regulation, but we've seen it play before, at least in industries that weren't that sensitive. So if we think about Uber, Airbnb, there's some back and forth. Um, but what's more fascinating is to think about you know, places outside of the US. Uh, this may not make sense in the US, uh, but as you start thinking about through the world, there may be economies where this makes a lot of sense. And um, it also becomes interesting to think about, you know, right now the cash and in particular the US dollar or maybe the euro in some countries is the default currency when you don't trust your local government. Uh, but once a serious country moves to a you know, cryptocurrency-based digital currency where maybe they have some monetary levers or whatever they need to make it work, uh, what does it mean that someone in, in any part of the world can access that and move out and vote with their wallet um, against their local fiat currency? Uh, I, I, I think that will, that will be a topic of a longer discussion. Got it. Well, this has been a really fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Right. Really enjoyed it.